you. Okay, so my name is Vince, as you have all heard. I am 40, turning 49 this year, so I'm getting close to that uh, big number. And um, so I'm not that young, you said early on. Um, I am married to Christine. Uh, she's an identical twin with Angela. I think many of you know Angela. I think she just did pass through position here last weekend. And so the two of them look very similar and often in meetings are confused with one another. I have two children, uh, Todd and Eden. Todd is now 17 and he is quite a bit taller than me and has been stronger than me for about three years. <laughs> I don't admit it to him though ever, but arm wrestles definitely takes me out. I still can keep up with him in a bench press. But uh, anyway, that's not what I'm here to talk about. Let me have a few sips and then we're going to get into speaking about the authority of the Son of Man this morning. Okay, so yeah, I've been to City Bowl, I think twice before, which was in the school hall, I think it's called Van Rubik, okay, so I was there a few years ago, and um, I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed this congregation, it just feels, I don't know, just a sense of life and um, excitement, so yeah, thank you for welcoming me. Um, Beginning of the week, I heard that I was coming here, I just felt the Lord just say, speak about the Son of Man. I've preached about the Son of Man before, um, but I felt that the Lord wanted to show something of the authority of the Son of Man. We, we live in, in a sense, troubled times. I suppose any time in history you go back into, it would always feel like a troubled time. But, you know, you've got news around you all the time. There's such uncertainty, uh, as this year we've seen you know, Russia invading Ukraine, and no one knows what to do, and then these talks about food shortages and hyperinflation coming, and, you know, last year we were, it was Taiwan and China, and I think that's probably still going on in the background, um, and there's always this fear of the future, nations wanting to do things to other nations, and, um, and so the average person, and in, even the church, if our heads are stuck in the newsroom, um, we can really be derailed. And I don't think that the Lord wants the, us believers to be walking with the same fear that the world w- walks with. And so that's kind of what I suppose I'm talking into today. Um, we c- continue to see um, nations making laws that go against God and His nature and His ways. Um, you know, we hear about abortions and redefining the natural order with gender and all these things going on. And, and it's nothing new. The nations have been against the Lord and against His rule for, for centuries and millennia, actually. And, um, and so with that in mind, I want to start with Daniel chapter 2, and then we're going to go to Daniel chapter 7. But in Daniel chapter 2, there's a picture. And really what's happening here is um, we're starting to see how the Lord speaks about the nations that are defiant to Him. So there's King Nebuchadnezzar lying in his bed, and he's having this dream. And so Daniel's busy interpreting the dream to him. And he says, you looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze. Uh, and later he describes that this is, these are pictures of different nations and the strength of different nations. It's, uh, it's legs of iron and feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut from a mountain, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. And the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. I think that's just so powerful. As this rock comes and this mighty statue representing the the rebellious nations of the world um, gets broken to pieces and the wind blows it away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This, uh, this rock is symbolic of the kingdom of God that comes and, uh, and has come already in Christ and is busy growing and growing and will become a mountain that will fill the earth. In verse 44 of Daniel 2, he says, In those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. The rock in this uh, picture is just so powerful. Because it's a picture actually of the kingdom of God. But actually of Christ. Christ is called the rock in many places in scripture. Uh, in this description he's not cut from human hands. He comes from above. And, um, and through him God fills the whole earth. So Romans 9, uh, verse 32, it's not in the, in the, I haven't given you that scripture, but it says, they, they have humbled themselves over, they, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a, a stone of stumbling, that's who Jesus is, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so the nations, you know, trust in themselves, they trust in their own power, their own cleverness. Uh, but yeah, you have a stumbling stone. In Daniel chapter 7, we have another picture. And in this picture, it's a picture really, a very powerful description of the Ancient of Days. Have you ever heard, there was a worship song many years ago called the Ancient of Days. Very vibey. Ron Canoli. No, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> anyway, so another picture of nations, okay? So um, in this picture... And I, whenever I find pictures of the Lord, I like to find pictures that don't show his face because we can't see his face. And any artist who tries to draw his face, uh, I mean, you don't know what the Lord looks like. So there's the Ancient of Days, and he's got angels um, around him. And there's at the bottom, you see a man. And so this is a description of what's happening here from Daniel chapter 7. There's four great beasts, each, each different from the others, and they come up out of the sea. And these beasts, just to summarize, are the different nations. There's like a lion, and then there's a bear, a leopard, and then there's a, there's a fourth beast that isn't given a description. But they're the different empires that have come through the ages. Massive empires, massive sort of world-dominating empires that have come, um, like the, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, that have all come and sort of influenced the whole world at that time. And and, um, you know, maybe if it was written today, you'd see Russia there, you'd see USA, um, different big world powers that dominate. And, and so in, uh, from verse 9, it says, as I looked, thrones were placed. And, the, and it's like you, you have to almost, it's almost like happens in slow motion. This picture of heaven and what's really taking place. It says, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. And the hair of his head, like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. 
A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn is speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. So this is in context. There was, a, there was this beast, and there was a, a, a beast with ten horns, and then a little horn, like emerged and seemed to be very blasphemous. And, and um, he says, as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now this is the, this is the passage that when Jesus refers to himself as son of man, he's referring to this passage. He says, okay, so I saw with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And then this artist's impression, you see this man, you know, coming before the ancient of days. And it says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one, that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus saw his role primarily as the son of man. And uh, it's a very ambiguous term because it could mean um, a normal man. Ezekiel was referred to the son, as a son of man as well. And it was with a small s and a small m. And it was very much meaning just a human being. And yet comes a human being before the Lord. But to him is given all dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And he is the son of man with a capital S you know, and a capital M. And so Jesus uses this uh, title about 81 times in the Gospels, referring to himself as the Son of Man. And it's, I think he does it um, almost in a, in, in a way on purpose because he veils himself. Jesus was born in a manger, wasn't born in a king's palace. He looked like any other normal human being. Um, you know, whenever you see... Um, you know, TV programs or about Jesus, they often choose a very good-looking man. And I don't believe that is actually accurate. If you read Isaiah chapter 53, it says there's nothing actually attractive about him physically. He wasn't like some kind of a guy with a six-pack and all these things. I think he was very much a normal-looking guy. Like if you just looked through the crowd, you wouldn't notice him. He was, in other words, his glory was veiled. But he was full of glory. And only those with the eyes of faith could see him, and I believe that it's still the same today, that those with the eyes of faith will see him, but a lot, many will miss him. He's veiled. And, uh, and so he comes as looking like a normal man. The Lord seems to, to leave room for doubt. His glory is veiled. Uh, and everyone will have to make a decision. But what I want to do today is I want to I look at from the New Testament, I want to take some of the places in which Jesus speaks about himself as the Son of Man and actually look at his authority, authority, look at his dominion, look at his glory and see how that affects us and how that gives us as believers, those whose eyes have been opened, how it can give us confidence. And hopefully maybe there are even some yet today whose eyes aren't yet opened, whose eyes will be opened. But, um, you know, the kingdoms of this world will continue to rage. They'll continue to defy God and his laws. They, you know, in the Psalms it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And we see that happening in the United Nations and 
all these things. And you know, in Romans chapter 1, it says, By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. This is what's happening in the world. And in, and in Luke 18, verse 8, Jesus speaks about himself. And he says, When the Son of Man comes, and he's talking about his second coming, when he comes again, will he find faith on the earth? And uh, he's looking for those who will today see him as the true king by faith while he's still veiled. And that we would be the ones who would see by faith that he is the true Messiah and that we would serve him now. But the truth is, is that he won't be veiled forever. Because when he comes again, he will reveal himself to all as he really is. You know, um, the apostle John when he, saw, when he saw Jesus in the book of Revelation, he saw Jesus as he really was. He fell at his feet as though dead because he was so glorious. So the first point I want to make is that the Son of Man will come again and everyone will know it. And there will be no more doubt. Matthew twenty four thirty says this, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man, coming on the clouds in heaven with power and great glory. The Bible also says, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When Jesus comes again, it will be everyone will know it instantaneously. They, you know, they might have ignored him for a while, but there will come a day when all eyes will recognize and see him. And everyone will have to stop in that moment. They'll have to stop what they're doing. And this day is coming. You know, stock market traders will have to stop what they're doing. Meetings will have to stop. Projects will have to stop. Building will have to stop. Entertainment will stop in that day when that lightning flash comes as he appears. Our plans will stop. Schools will stop. Universities will stop. The internet will stop. Quite, yeah, goodness. <laughs> Busyness will stop. Rebellion and defiance against God will finally be stopped. And the Son of Man will arrive in glory. Matthew 25, 31 says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And in verse, a bit later in verse, uh, chapter 26, 64, it says, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and, and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so He won't come hidden like in his first coming and veiled, his, the second coming will be completely glorious. And he will sit on a glorious throne and he will take his place finally as ruler and king and he will reign over everything. Everyone will be in awe and will be trembling. And for those who refuse to recognize him uh, in this day and age, it's, the Bible says they will mourn. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Because in that moment, they will realize that we are forsaken. We have refused to recognize the true king. And it will be too late in that day to repent. But I believe the church will be excited. I mean, how many of you are excited for his coming? We're excited. When all these troubles around us are happening, um, threats of persecution, you know, we get excited for the fact that he's coming. And he's going to sort out the good from the bad. And... Uh, and we're excited for that day. But the Son of Man will come. And one of the first things that he'll do is that he'll execute judgment. 
In Matthew 20, uh, 16, verse 27, it says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and He will repay each person according to what He has done. In John five twenty seven, He says, And um, He, that is God, has given Him authority, has given the Son of Man authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. You know, in... Uh, in other uh, scriptures, uh, it says that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So when Jesus comes, He comes as the Son of Man, the one from Daniel chapter 7, who is given all authority, all dominion, all rule, that all nations should serve Him. And so that's how He comes. And, uh, and each one of us will have our moment standing before Him. Every person that's alive today, whether we're a believer or non-believer, even an atheist who doesn't believe in Him, will stand before Him one day. And each of us will have our moment before Him as the perfect judge. And no one will be able to argue their way out of anything. You know, one of the, the, the strengths and weaknesses of my son is that he's really good at arguing his way out of a situation. You know, I, it's, it's probably a mistake I made as a father when he was younger. I decided, like, I'm not going to be like autocratic and domineering i'm gonna give him a voice you know but <laughs> as he's grown it's like anything that i rebuke him for he has like his counter argument and <clears throat> anyway in that day and age when we stand before the lord we can't counter argue you we can't say but lord did you did you not understand my motive or we'll just have to stand and await what he what he says nothing will be hidden from him when he judges Isaiah says, for when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. You know, the righteousness is, um, well, our idea of righteousness on earth has been really twisted. And so many people are calling things that are wrong, right. But on that day, we will learn righteousness when he makes his judgments. Romans 11 says, how unsearchable are your judgments and how unscrutable your ways. So the earth today also is filled with many unjust judges. You know, we obviously try people, we try and appoint um, judges that are going to be good for the, for the land. But, you know, judges on earth get it wrong. And there are many guilty people today who have gotten away with things. Gotten away with crimes. They've gotten away with murder. Gotten away with rapes. False accusations. They've gotten away with molesting people. With hurting others. Gotten away with stealing. But the Son of Man will come as the righteous judge revelation says that his eyes are like flames of fire and he sees through facades and when he judges it will be correct because he will see the hidden motives of every heart that's who he is when the son of man comes you will have authority to reap the harvest of the earth and so there's a quite a powerful image uh, found about the son of man standing there with his sickle and so revelation 14 says this then i looked and behold a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling in a loud voice to him, who said on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud, this is Jesus, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Just such powerful imagery, you know. Only he has the authority to do this, to reap the earth. And so there are two types of things that will be reaped. There will be a grain harvest. The Son of Man will come together the believers for himself. 
and there'll be a grape harvest, which is the bloody destruction of the wicked. And so that's what we see as we read through the book of Revelation. And so in his first coming, the Son of Man came as, as a gospel sower. He was sowing seed, and his second coming is coming as the reaper. And uh, <clears throat> this is the Son of Man and the power and the authority that he has. The Son of Man also has the authority to wash us clean. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, he says this, but he says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is the authority that he has. He can wash us clean. Um, I don't know if you can see that image very clearly, but I just love that it. it's obviously an artist impression of that's Jesus. With the, you know, he's always drawn with a glow around his head. And he's touching someone that's needing forgiveness. And you can see the righteousness coming into him and the darkness kind of fleeing. And there was this word about shadows today. But he has the power to cleanse us of our shadows. You know, all of us have done things that we're ashamed of. Um, All of us have missed the mark. We've fallen short of God's glory. God's image in mankind has been twisted and distorted. Maybe in some of our own lives, his image has been twisted and distorted by things that have happened to us. But he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And I mean, that is a wonderful thing. You know, um, if any of us have ever broken the law and... um, and maybe the police have found out about it. I'm sure you know uh, or can imagine what a terrible feeling that is. You know, I've broken the law. And, what, you know, let's just say you went on a joyride and you, you got into some, someone's sports car and you did like nearly 300 kilometers an hour on the freeway. And you went through a, a camera and it's got you. What are you going to do? You know, I know I've heard of guys who... Go back and I'll try and destroy the camera. And maybe that's the only way they can get free. <laughs> but, you know, what are you going to do? And that feeling of like I'm guilty and I've been caught. And, uh, and you know, I think one of the things that bothers me um, is that I think sometimes for human beings is they are guilty. They know they're guilty. But as the passage of time goes by, they go, oh, well, that is long ago. It's long ago. It's just, it's fine. It's like I'm different now. But... It's a mark against your, your soul. It's, a, it's on the record. You will stand before the Lord and give an account unless he becomes and you allow him to wash you. Unless you he, but he has the authority to do that. No man can come to you and say it's all right, it's a fine. Not even a judge on earth can, can do that when we sinned against the God of heaven. So the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins and it would be in our best interest to, to find him in this day and age. The Son of Man also has the power to rescue us. In Luke 19 verse 10, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And uh, that word lost means to destroy. Like someone who's destroyed fully. Someone who is, uh, it means to destroy, to die, to lose, to perish. The lost refers to those who have been destroyed by sin, who have perished. Um, I've heard David Pawson talking about the word perish, and he says it's like a tire. When a tire has perished, you've got no more use for it, so you throw it away. It's, it's, it's lost its usefulness. Those that have, you know, Jesus, the Son of Man, has come to seek and to save the lost, those that are destroyed, those who are perished, those who have lost their usefulness in many ways. He's come to save them, and he's able to because he's the Son of Man. He's able to save. He's come to seek you and to save you. 
Okay. And next point, the Son of Man has the authority to open the heavens. So in John 1.51, it says, And he said to him, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And we know that when Jesus was baptized, as he went into that water, the heavens were opened over him. And it's, I don't know if they all saw it, or, uh, but it's written there that the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit came down in the picture of a dove, in the form of a dove, and, and remained upon him. And the heavens, we're never told again that those heavens closed up. They, the heavens over his life are opened. And, and so this description here, it says, and you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That comes from Genesis 20, I think it's 28, where Jacob was lying um, and he was sleeping. And he had a vision or a dream of heavens being opened. And it was this amazing dream because, you know, it, it must have always felt like, where is God? You know, I don't know where God is, but suddenly, wow, there's this, I have this access. He had this dream about access to God, and there was this hole up in the sky, and the ladder going right up into where God was. And there were angels coming down, and for me, that's what it means. When the angels come down, they're bringing resources from heaven that we don't have. And, you know, there's this communication that's now opened. And actually, what Jesus is saying when he uses this verse, he's saying, I'm the greater way of access to God. The Son of Man, I, I bring that to you. You know, you don't have to uh, be, be cut off from God anymore. You can now pray. And we, for us as believers in Christ, we can, heavens are open for us. When we pray, the Lord hears that. We can pray with confidence. The kingdom is one where we have access to the King. And it's through the Son of Man, through Christ. You know, when Jacob woke up, he said, the, he says, I didn't realize it, but, but God is in this place. And this is none other than the house of God. And so Jesus opens it all up for us. And the Son of Man <clears throat> gives us true purpose in life. And so John six twenty seven says this, Do not work for, the food, for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him... God, has, God the Father has set His seal. So many people live for today, live for food that perishes. What do I mean by that? Well, people live for all sorts of things. I live for becoming number one in my sport. And for anyone who knows about that, you have to put so many hours in to become number one or to improve. I, mean, I used to play a lot of golf at one stage. And I remember I actually... You know, it would um, affect, for me to improve, I would just have to think about it all the time. And I'd be standing talking to someone, and while I'm talking to them, I'm doing golf. <laughs> it was just the way it was. I was always thinking about it. Eventually, I realized, you know what, I better stop this. You know, and um, I still sometimes do it today. It's like a bit of a habit. But, um, I, yeah, you know, there are many sportsmen who will wake up incredib at incredibly early hours of the morning and Leave their families behind because they want to become better. And, um, you know, and obviously sport isn't bad. I love sports, but we need to hold this in the right tensions. So all I'm saying is, Jesus says, don't work for food that perishes. Food that perishes means things of this world that will not translate into the next world. Um, maybe it's your career, you know, and some people will, will slave 
so that they might advance or that they may make a name for themselves. And uh, actually all of that will be left behind. Unless if the Lord has uh, designated you for a particular task or whatever, I'm just saying, listen to what he says. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. There are things that we can do on this earth that will translate into the next life, that will give us rewards for the next life. So the Son of Man is saying, keep it all in perspective. What's the use of slaving away at something that's going to be left here? We need, to, we need to step back, zoom out a bit, and see this life as a temporary thing. You know, like the rich man who built bigger barns. Because he was so wealthy, he didn't have place for all his wealth. Well, let me build bigger barns. And then Jesus said to him, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. What's going to happen to all your wealth then? Who will you leave it to? So the Son of Man is able to give us eternal life. He's able to um, give us purpose in life. He's able to help us to live for things that will endure and not for things that will just simply fall away. And with, with Christ, we're able to partner with Him for eternal purposes. And really in the church, finding your place, running in your lane, operating in the gifting that He's given you, that is part of that, you know, getting involved in discipleship and, and uh, serving the bride of Christ. These are things that are going to be remembered and will be recorded in heaven. You know, we can build for ourselves here on earth, um, but it's temporary. Or we can build for Christ, and then we're partnering with the eternal. And so he's giving us this choice. And I want to draw to an end by just looking at uh, Revelation chapter 1, where John, the very good disciple who was very close friends with Jesus, who lay with his head on his chest at the Last Supper, uh, on the island, I think it is the island of Patmos, he, he sees Jesus as he's never seen him before. And he sees the Son of Man with power and dominion and glory. And in and verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, it says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a Son of Man. That's the same description that was uh, Daniel 7. One like a Son of Man, clothed with a long robe. So he's seeing Jesus. Not his, just like his friend anymore, but this is, remember, um, Jesus went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter, James, and John saw him, and, they, and his clothes were white like lightning, and, uh, at all, you know, and they saw him as he truly was. It's almost like that veil was temporarily taken off, and they were able to see who he really was. Well, yeah, now that he's raised again and ascended, he's continually in this form, and, uh, and so he sees him now, he says, so he, He's amongst the lampstands, which are the churches, like a son of man, clothed in a long robe. The long robe uh, testifies to the fact that he's, he's in his priestly office. And it says that he, has a, he has a golden sash around his chest. That golden sash was signified authority in God's house. And so the, the scripture says that he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. So he has final authority in the house of the Lord. And verse 14, the hairs of his head were white. White like wool, like snow, signifying that he has divine wisdom. His eyes were like a flame of fire, as I said earlier on. He's able to see through facades, can see through all pretense. And his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Again, just signifying that uh, his enemies will be put under his feet, that he will crush his opponents. And his voice is like the roar of many waters. I don't know if any of you have, been, have heard a waterfall. I've been to Vic Falls, and you hear the roar of that water. And so this is his voice when he speaks. And also the scriptures in the Psalms, it talks about, it says, deep 
calls unto deep at the, at the noise of your waterfalls. And so there's something about him and his voice that when he speaks to us, even today, when with the ears of faith we hear his voice, his voice can change the direction of our lives at any moment. And I believe for all of us sitting here, we're sitting here because our direction has been changed. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, which is the word of God. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. All these descriptions, they're describing um, his absolute power, his authority, his wisdom, his judgment, his glory. And seeing him is like seeing God Almighty. And then John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And so to end off with the Luke 18 verse 8, the verse I mentioned earlier on. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Or will, be, or will we be those who will be caught off guard? Uh, though, will we be those who today, with the eyes of faith, see who He truly is?